This series of miracles is a fascinating account in the Gospel of Matthew. You can hear it's punctuated each time by, Behold, this person appears with a problem. Behold, behold, behold. It's meant to draw our attention to something that Jesus is trying to put our eyes towards. Right? The miracles are proclaiming a message. They're teaching us something about who Jesus is. Now, maybe you're skeptical. We live in a very skeptical age. And one of the things we've often said in our minds and our hearts is, I'll believe Jesus, I'll follow Jesus if he gives me a sign. Anyone ever done that? Sit there and be like, God, if you're real, give me a sign. I remember seeing in an airport, there was a sign, there was an advertisement for a church, and it said, this is your sign from God. And I was like, that's pretty clever. Right? But that touches on the way that our minds work. And we, we, we get jealous about those first century people, those crowds. They're like, man, if I could see somebody just like come back to life, a blind man get healed, a demon cast out, I'd be like, I believe. I'm in. But that's not what happens. It's odd. That's not what happens. They, they see these miracles, and not only do they not believe, not only are the crowds themselves, it's, it's not enough for them to actually follow Jesus, but some of them, it actually ratchets up their hostility towards them. They had everything they needed, and yet, it didn't immediately convert them. And that's because the miracles, again, were proclaiming a message that was offensive to them. There's a poem by W.H. Auden called The Age of Anxiety. He writes this, We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. In other words, with these miracles, it's not so much that they can't believe them, it's that they don't want to. A Jesus who is merely a spiritual teacher, the founder of a private religion, a Jesus who is merely a social activist, is fine. But you bring in a Jesus who casts out demons, who heals the paralyzed, who shatters all expectations, who rises from the dead, then you get in trouble. Because if he is who he says he is, if these things really happened, then he's not just some miracle worker, he is the Lord. He is the Lord of all creation. And that demands something of us. It demands a response to follow him, to submit to his rule and his reign. It's not a matter of whether we can believe, but it's rather we don't want to believe. It's just going to mess up all of our plans. It's going to mess up who the center of our life is. And so we'd much rather sit behind the veneer of objectivity and say, this is all just a myth. But Jesus presses that upon us. In fact, the word gospel, it's a Greco-Roman term. It was used to proclaim the reign of an emperor. It was the good news of a king's reign. And uh, one of the emperors that was reigning during Jesus' day he actually, they had this practice of deifying their adopted fathers or their fathers, their, their, their predecessors. So one of them said that my predecessor, Julius Caesar, he is a god. And that makes the Caesar a son of God. And he proclaims the good news of his reign. And here, underneath his reign, is Jesus appearing in first century Jerusalem saying, no, this is the true gospel, the true good news, the true reign of the true son of God. It is a political statement. Jesus did not come, again, to found a private religion in your heart. 
a, a particular way of looking at things, a philosophy of life. He came with this, this disruptive public announcement that God has raised up his king, that there is a Lord of all the earth, and that puts him against Caesar and all the powers and principalities, that he is supreme, and he demands a response of obedience, a response to follow. So because he is the Lord, we must follow him. That is the implication of all of these miracles. And these miracles reveal certain aspects of what it means that he is Lord. And I'm going to go through three of them. The first one is that Jesus is the one who makes all things new. The second is that Jesus is the one who brings life out of death. And finally, Jesus is the one who defeats darkness with light. Let's look at that first one. Jesus is the one who makes all things new. This passage begins with this interesting dialogue. The disciples of John the Baptist approach Jesus and his disciples with a question. Why don't you guys fast? Because we and the Pharisees also fast. Now remember, John the Baptist, he shows up. He's the one who anticipates Jesus. And he's baptizing people, waiting for the Messiah. And this idea of waiting is central to understanding why they ask about fasting. Both them and the Pharisees, who end up being a lot of the adversaries that are against Jesus, they make a practice of fasting because fasting both mourns over sin and the tragedy of life and anticipates God rescuing his people. There's a mourning and an anticipation in fasting. We, we fast in order that we might one day feast. And Israel in the first century had many things to mourn about. Their forefathers had spent 70 years in exile in Babylon because of their sin, and they're brought back to the land. But even in the first century, the Jews, they're brought back into their land, but they're still underneath pagan rule. They're underneath the Roman Empire. And so there's a sense in which the story is not complete. They're still waiting for God to bring the king and the Messiah and the promise and the restoration that had been promised. And they read books like the prophet Hosea. Hosea likens God as a bridegroom to Israel, as Israel's husband, as the long-suffering husband who is continually patient with his wife, who continues to be unfaithful to him. And there's this hope that one day he will come and rescue his wayward bride and restore her and bring her back to himself. And that hope colors the fasting of the first century Jews, of both the Pharisees and John's disciples. And so when they're asking Jesus and his disciples, why don't you fast? They're essentially saying, why don't you have the same longing? Don't you see what's going on? Why don't you fast? Why don't you mourn? And Jesus has a fascinating response. He says to them, because the bridegroom is here. Because the one you're waiting for is looking you in the eyes. You only fast when the bridegroom's not here. But if he's here, the time for feasting begins. In other words, Jesus is saying, I understand what you're asking. I understand the question under the question. And I'm saying to you, yes, I am God in the flesh coming back to his people the bridegroom coming to rescue his bride. I am here. I am what you have hoped for. You don't need to fast. So apparently news traveled slowly. John's disciples, they're preparing for Jesus, and now they see it, and John's ministry has faded away. He was just there as a forerunner. Now he's pointed to Jesus, and Jesus has come, and Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of your longings and your fasting. So why don't they get it? Why do so many people, if he is really the fulfillment of all their longings, why is there so much skepticism with Jesus? And Jesus answers with this interesting illustration featuring wine and wineskins and different kinds of cloth. Why does he bring that up? You've got to imagine Jesus is busting onto the scene and he's 
He's eating with Gentiles and tax collectors. Prostitutes are following him. He's proclaiming himself as Lord of the Sabbath. He's pointing to the temple, which is the center of Jewish life, and saying it's going to be destroyed. He's saying crazy things. He's not the Messiah that they expected. And he explains that. He says, if you want to understand the new thing that God is doing in me, the new thing that is the fulfillment of all the old things he promised, if you want to understand and have a paradigm for my ministry, you've got to understand it like this. If you take new cloth that's not shrunk and you use it to patch over old cloth, it will eventually shrink and tear the cloth and leave a worse hole. Or if you take new wine and you pour it into an old wineskin, the whole thing's going to burst. In other words, you need a new environment for this new ministry that I'm doing. You need a new paradigm that Jesus Christ and his ministry cannot be contained in the old wineskin of the old covenant, of the Old Testament system. Some of you may have had the unpleasant experience of, you know, you're updating an app on your phone, and then it tells you you need to get a new phone. And you're like, I just got this phone last month, right? A new app requires a new hardware, a new phone. And in the same way, the new wine of Jesus requires a new covenant, a new administration, something that surpasses the old. And Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the law, with the old covenant, but to fulfill it. In other words, to bring all the threads of the Old Testament to its completion, and in doing so, bring forth something new. So, you're no longer going to need sacrifices. He's going to be the ultimate sacrifice. You're not going to need a temple. His body will be the temple. You're not going to need a priesthood because he will be your great high priest. He brings everything to fruition. He is the climax of the story that's being told in the Old Testament. So their paradigms have to change. They have to understand that he is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. And so Jesus unlocks the mystery of Israel and the history of Israel. But more than that, he also unlocks the history of the world. And if you read through the Old Testament, there are these incredible promises centered around this idea of a seed or an offspring. In Genesis, right after the fall, right after humanity has blown it, right after Adam and Eve have disobeyed God and brought sin and death into the world, God gives them a promise. He says, Eve, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. Your offspring, your son, will defeat Satan defeat darkness, and make all things new. He will undo the curse of the fall. And you fast forward to Genesis 12, and God tells Abraham, Abraham, your son, your seed, your offspring will bless all the nations of the world. And then you fast forward again to 2 Samuel, and God tells David, your son, your seed, will be an eternal king. He will reign forever. He will bring justice and righteousness over all the earth. And all those promises are in the background, and Jesus shows up and says, I'm the seed. I am the offspring. I am the one who will undo the curse of the fall. I am the one who will bless all the nations of the world. I am the one who will reign forever in righteousness. Jesus unlocks the history of the world. We often think about history as one random event after another. It's just a clash of power through time with no rhyme or reason. But in Jesus Christ, he says, no, there is a purpose to history. It is unfolding according to the will of God. And in the life of Jesus Christ, he challenges all the frameworks of history that we have. In Adam, our first father, sin and death comes into the world. But in Christ, life and righteousness comes. He's the second Adam. He brings about and succeeds where Adam failed. 
And he brings that new life into a dying world. And we get to be a part of it by placing our faith in Christ. And I've said this many times, being a Christian is not about taking Jesus and putting him into your story. It's rather you entering into his story. It is you becoming part of what Christ has done in history to renew all things, to bring you into his kingdom. And that means if you come to Christ, all your other paradigms have to be destroyed. All your other visions of history and the point of history has to be destroyed. Think about what does a narrative do? It gives us a sense of identity. And most of the discussion in our culture is around identity. Identity asks, where did I come from? What was I made for? Where am I going? And in Jesus Christ, we get those answers. We came from God, a good creator God who made us in his image. We were made to worship him, to know him. And by sin, we pull ourselves away from him into darkness. And where we're going is, in Christ, by faith in him, you live a life of righteousness. There's the life, the promise of resurrection. There's a promise of eternal life and union with God. Everything undone that the fall lost. That's where everything's going. And you can be a part of that. But that's going to mess up everything in your life. That's going to disrupt everything. It's going to mess up all the furniture in your house. That's what Jesus does. And we see that in this next part when we show how Jesus brings life out of death when he meets these two women in desperate need. If you look at verse 18, Jesus is teaching, and then suddenly this man, Jairus, which we find out that's his name in the uh, other accounts of the Gospels. He's a synagogue ruler. He's a well-known person in their society. And he shows up, and he has this urgent request. His daughter has died, and he asks Jesus to bring her back to life. And then instantly, as Jesus rises up to go help, he runs into this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and she is in a desperate situation. Now, there's something important going on here. Remember the bridegroom imagery. Isn't it interesting that the bridegroom shows up and he meets two women? They represent, I think, the plight of Israel. Twelve years of bloody discharge, twelve tribes of Israel. They're both called daughter, which is often a phrase used for Israel in the Old Testament. So they represent Israel longing for new life. Israel in death seeking out their Savior. Seeking out holiness. But they also represent all of humanity under the curse of death. We don't often think about how unyielding death is. It's uncompromising. Everything that lives will one day die. Our life is filled with decay and the terror of our mortality. This woman in the parallel accounts in Luke talks about how she spent all of her life savings on physicians and they couldn't help her. This illness is beyond human ability to help. And the dead woman, I mean death... Think about Jairus. He's this wealthy, important figure. He's got all these connections, and nothing can stop death. All the power, all the knowledge, all the status in the world, and death comes for all of us. It's irreversible. It is, there's a finality. You know this if you have experienced death in your own life. Loved ones dying. People around you have dying, died. You realize the irreversibility of it, the, the haunting nature of death. And so these women represent human inability every one of us underneath the curse of the fall. And it's in that that we see this remarkable thing happen. For a woman to be having this bloody discharge, it makes her ceremonially unclean, which means she can't go to the temple. 
and she can't touch people. Because the idea in the Levitical law and God's law was that this made you unclean, in which if you touch someone else, it would make them unclean. And the same thing was with death. If you touched a dead body, you would become unclean. And there was, there's, this, there's a logic behind this. God sets up this system to symbolize how death corrupts and infects everything. It's meant to give us a reality check on how dire our situation is. And the most you can do is just try to avoid the stain of death. Imagine this moment. Matthew makes a, a huge emphasis on touch. Jairus goes, I want you to lay your hand on my dead daughter. And you imagine if you're his apostles and his disciples, you're like, are you kidding? Don't touch her. You're going to get infected with death. You're going to become unclean. Or this woman in the crowd, she's crawling towards him and grabs his hem. And you could think the disciples are like, whoa, you can't touch a rabbi. Because if you touch her, she's going to become unclean. You're, you're going to be, or the rabbi, or Jesus is going to become unclean. You're going to infect her with death. And something incredible happens. The woman touches Jesus. And he doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. He, she touches his garment. And he doesn't get infected with death. She gets infected with life. And he touches the dead girl. And he doesn't get infected with death. But he fills her with life. This is a rabbi unlike any other. This is... This is the Messiah. This is God. Coming to do what the law cannot do. Bring life out of death. And imagine the faith that they have to do this. To be humiliated in front of everybody in their state. This woman, she hasn't had physical contact in 12 years. She is a pariah. She is socially alienated. But she sees Jesus and she knows, He is the only one that can help me. And Jairus knows he is the only one that can help me. That is the essence of faith, this desperation, this reaching out for Jesus. Now, these stories always raise the question of healing and whether God heals everyone. Or is there enough faith to heal someone? Do you have to have enough faith to get it over the meter this much so that you'll get the physical healing that you desire? I had a friend, he's a well-meaning friend, but I think mistaken in this. He was saying to me, he thinks that it is always God's will to heal in this life. Always. To which I responded, well, Jesus died. Jesus suffered. And so I think we see in the cross the mystery of suffering. On the one hand, absolutely Jesus can heal. He can do miracles. He can do what human beings cannot. And yet, Jesus stayed on the cross. There was a purpose to that. Also, he didn't heal everyone he came across. He didn't start a hospital. He didn't raise everybody from the dead. There was a purpose and a mission to the miracles that he did. And finally, everyone he healed died again. Sometimes it gets lost on us. Jairus' daughter died again. Lazarus died again. In other words, at some point, every prayer for healing we have will be yes, 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 until it's finally no, and we die. Every one of our petitions for prayer will one day end with a no, and yet, in the glory of the resurrection, that no is actually the final yes, when we receive our final full healing in the resurrection of our bodies in new heavens and new earth. So their faith stretches beyond their temporal healing to the eternal healing. It's just a foretaste of the resurrection of what is coming forward. And again, remember, the bridegroom says, interestingly, he says, I'm going to go away. 
He's foretelling his cross. He's saying that the pathway to this eternal life is going to come not by avoiding death, but through death. It's through the cross that the resurrection comes. And it gives us a way to understand suffering while also praying for healing. A way to understand that we should pray for God to do the impossible, and yet we know that God will heal us eventually. It's just a matter of time. And that even every moment of healing we experience in this life Every moment of reconciliation, every grace that we experience in this life is just a foretaste of that final deliverance. And we have to have that perspective. Sometimes that foretaste is physical healing. Sometimes it's not. But we all will experience little droplets of the heavenly life in this life that are meant to whet our appetite for what is to come. Because the hope is that Jesus can bring life out of death. And this authority to do so is demonstrated in this last little section when we see that Jesus is able to destroy darkness with light. Jesus walks on and he meets two blind men who cry out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. It's an interesting thing that they call him. Son of David is a royal term, saying that you are the seed of David, like I mentioned earlier. They understand who Jesus is. They understand his royal position. You know, again, David was told he would have an heir that would reign forever. And yet, if you read First and Second Kings, the summary of First and Second Kings is every king is just worse and worse and worse and worse. You're like, how is this going to happen? These kings are terrible. And in fact, the final king in Second Kings 25, Zedekiah, he's there and he's, he sees Jeru- uh, Jerusalem being sieged by the Babylonian Empire. And they're destroyed. And the king of Babylon takes Zedekiah and he kills all of his sons before his eyes. That's the line of David, slaughtered. And then they gouge out his eyes and he becomes blind. That's how 2 Kings ends. This terrifying note. What's going to happen to the promise of God? And yet here we see, whereas Zedekiah saw the line end and he went blind, these blind men see And what do they see? The continuation of that line in Jesus. They see the hope of the Messiah, that David's royal son is here. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's not like his parents were Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a royal title. It's anointed one. It means king. And that's why Jesus provokes them. He goes, before I heal you, do you think that I can do this? Do you understand the authority I possess? Do you know who I am? And I love their response. They say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. They know who he is. Lord is a royal title. They know that he is the king, that he is the fulfillment of the promise. I remember when I was a young Christian, uh, you know, I was in a group and heard one of the guys pray, he was an older guy, and he would say, whenever we'd pray, he'd go, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You know, and there's this great cry of confidence, not just that God could do it, but that God was supreme, that he was sovereign. It was this utter act of submission. Lord, whatever your will, we know you're powerful. We submit to you. Lord, hear our prayer. Yes, Lord. And someone was telling me in between services, that's also a famous 90s evangelical song or something like that. And I was like, well, I didn't grow up in the church, so I missed that wonderful period of music history. But there you go. You can listen to that song as well. But I love that cry. Yes, Lord. It's this cry of understanding that you are the Christ. You are the King. And we submit to you and we ask you for Mercy. And all of Israel is stunned. 
Right? They're stunned by what he's able to do. And then he bumps into a mute man and he casts out a demon. Right? Again, that's, that's the weird stuff. Right? Again, we, li- we like teacher Jesus. We like nice Jesus. It's like, but casting out demons Jesus is too freaky. Right? But that's part and parcel of his ministry. He goes, if you take out my exorcism, you're not understanding who I am. He's like Joshua coming in to conquer the land. He's casting out the evil spirits. He's showing, and, and all the, the demons that meet him, they know who he is. They're like, you're the son of God. We're terrified of you. That's the royal authority that he possesses. And he casts it out of this mute man and heals him. He casts out the darkness with light. Light is often in the Bible a sign of the truth of God, the light of Christ, exposing the darkness. And what's interesting is the response. Again, some people are stunned. We've never seen like, anything like this in Israel. But then the Pharisees say, in response, you are demon-possessed. They point at Jesus and say, you're doing this by the power of Satan. They don't deny the miracle. They think Jesus is a double agent, that he is satanic. And in doing so, they reveal their own dark influence. They reveal that they themselves have been blinded by Satan. See, the, the mute guy who's demon-possessed, we get, we're like, okay, that's satanic. That's, right, that's crazy. That's dark. We understand that. But notice the other satanic influence on the Pharisees. It's much more subtle. These are not atheists calling de- uh, Jesus demonic. These are not pagans. These are scripture-loving, tax-paying, traditional values, family values-driven, good, moral, personally responsible people. And they're filled with hatred toward Christ. Isn't that fascinating? That's what self-righteousness does. It blinds you to the truth. And Jesus even says in John 8, 44, he looks at the Pharisees and says, your father is the devil because the truth is not in you. Remember in fourth grade, I was with my friend, we were at this bat exhibit on a field trip to the zoo. And we go inside, and it's in this dark cave, and I'm pointing out, look at those bats. And he's like, what are you talking about? This is a stupid exhibit. There are no bats in here. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're right there. And I look over, and he's wearing sunglasses inside. (laughs) But he was so sure that there were no bats. He was so sure of his perspective. He was so sure that he saw correctly. And what was he doing? He He was actually blinded. And Satan blinds the eyes of those who are filled with that self-righteousness. Satan is fine. If you have a great job, you raise moral kids, you're a good person, and, you don't, and you're nice to everybody. He's fine with that. He is fine if you devote your life to charity, feed the poor, commit to social activism, and, have, and you're a great listener. He's fine with all of that, so long as it makes you feel good enough about yourself that you don't need Jesus. So long as that gives you enough pride and self-righteousness to think that you're going to be okay. But the blindness of self-righteousness is haunting in this passage. They think that he's satanic. Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, he goes up to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and, and he says this about her son. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He says, Jesus came to divide, 
to reveal hearts, to force the issue. When you meet him, you have to make a decision. He's going to shatter families apart. He's going to divide nations. He's going to disrupt everything. He's going to make things uncomfortable. And everyone who encounters him has to make a decision. So when I explain this passage, when you hear these words, that issue is being pressed on you. Some of us were the woman bleeding, desperate for healing, desperate for God to rescue us. But some of us are in the crowd. We're watching this, and you will respond in some way. How will you respond? Will you respond with laughter? Will you respond with hostility, like the Pharisees? Will you respond with apathy? To merely appreciate Jesus from a distance is to reject him. To merely treat him as a good influence is to call him a liar. There are only two options. There is to follow or to rebel. And he forces that issue upon all the crowds, and he forces that issue for us. He comes to bring that sword. He is the one who makes all things new. He is the one who overcomes death with life. He is the one who casts out the darkness. And the question is, do you want to be a part of that? You know, there are many new faces this morning, and that's wonderful. I love that. And, you know, I know when you check out different churches, you're like, okay, what do I think about the music and the preaching and how are the people and this, you know, and that's great. But what we want you to think about the most. And what we care the most of what you think about is, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? How do you respond to the king who summons you with the gospel? You might be in the crowd, and you must make a decision. Will you be proud? Will you be self-righteous? Or will you bow the knee? Will you reach out and grab the hem of his garment? Will you cry out, have mercy on me, son of David? That's what I hope for you. That you would look upon him. That you would look upon the one who made you for himself. Who came, died, and rose again to save sinners. That you would look upon him and say with a humble and contrite heart, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Let's pray.